Diocese of Churches for the Sake of Others is pleased to present the C4SO podcast, a place to celebrate the voices and values of C4SO. C4SO is a national diocese of the Anglican Church in North America led by Bishop Todd Hunter. You can learn more about us at c4so.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the C4SO podcast. I'm your host, Ben Sternke, and as usual, I'm here with the bishop, Bishop Todd Hunter. Good day, Ben. Good to see you again. Yes, good to see you as well. Uh, We can obviously see each other, the software we're using. um, uh, We can see each other, but obviously you can't see us. Um, We're just listening to our voices. Uh, We're in the midst of this uh, inaugural uh, series on our podcast on the vision, the mission, the uh, values of C4SO, and uh, we're going to finish that series out today um, with uh, talking about sacrament and then move on to uh, some some other things, including an exciting new series that we have coming out for the Advent season. We'll talk a little bit about that uh, more later. Uh, just a couple notices, announcements before we get started. Uh, the Diocesan Convention is happening November 14th. Um, there's a link to register in the show notes. That's happening November 14th. That's a Saturday at 10.30 a.m. Central Time. 11.30 Eastern. Um, and yeah, you can, um, anybody can sign up for that. If you're just kind of curious about C4SO uh, clergy, if you're listening, uh, you need to sign up for it and uh, <laughs> and be there. That's an important aspect of our life together as a diocese. And um, the second thing is that if you are enjoying and being edified by this podcast, um, we could use your help uh, to get the word out, um, share it with your friends, share it with somebody that you think might be interested in the content that we're um, talking about here. Um, you could subscribe in your favorite podcast player and also rate and review us, especially on Apple Podcasts. That helps other people find the podcast. And um, I think as our audience grows, we can uh, shape the content more and more to uh, what's going to be helpful and edifying for those who are listening. So that's the idea there. Um, all right. So our, moving into the content then for today's episode, we are talking about the final of our five values as a diocese, um, we've talked about kingdom, we've talked about spirit, we've talked about formation, we've talked about mission, and all of those episodes are available in our podcast feed if you want to go back if you haven't heard them. And today, um, Todd, we're going to talk about sacrament as one of our values. Uh, you ready to go? Ready to go. <laughs> okay. Um, so sacrament, I mean, the, one of the interesting things about thinking about sacrament as a value um, is I think oftentimes we think of sacraments, and especially as an Anglican diocese, uh, we think about sacraments as things we do, and they are things we do, and they're things we practice and things we value. But talking about sacrament as a value, um, I think, is an, interesting, um, is an interesting way to think through it. So we say this on the website when we talk about this value. Through the sacraments, the church is assured of God's faithfulness to his promise to act in particular ways. Um, and I wonder if you could talk about that word assured a little mm-hmm. bit and also talk about what we mean by sacrament as a value, not just a, a thing we do on Sundays. Um, and just a little uh, aside, I guess, for, for me, the reason I'm interested in that word assured is that one of the reasons I personally was drawn to the sacramental tradition was because I had encountered, um, this is an overgeneralization, <laughs> obviously, but I, I felt like I had encountered God with my mind in the evangelical tradition. That yeah. It was all about concepts and Bible study and learning more about God mm-hmm. and the kingdom of God and all that kind of stuff. It was wonderful. 
Um, and I encountered God through my emotions in the charismatic church. I have a charismatic church background, and there was mm-hmm. there was this emotional connection uh, that I felt with God. But it always seemed like uh, when I was only rooted in one of those two traditions, it always seemed like to encounter God was to have a profound thought about God. To encounter God was to have a deep emotion about God, or some, or you know, in an encounter with God. But in the sacramental tradition, I encountered God through my body, right? But just by receiving bread and wine and and you know, and the waters of baptism. So there was this receiving of right. um, Christ in this tangible, tasteable, digestible way, um, and embodied. I, I, and that's why I want you to talk a little bit about. Uh, assurance, because that was the assurance I think I think that I needed. So even if mm-hmm. I was having a bad day, right. even if I was, you know, not particularly sharp in my thinking that day, or wasn't really having a profound thought, or maybe didn't even like God that, all that much that day, yeah, right. Um, there was still this promise that was assured to me of no, you're still encountering the presence of God. Just come to the table, open your hands, you know, receive yeah. the bread, drink the wine. Um, so anyway, I wonder if you could unpack that a little bit for us. Actually, Ben, I think that's a good place. Starting with your story is a good place to start because uh, the embodiment that you're talking about there, <clears throat> in other words, including uh, our intellect that we might think of when we think of Bible study and that sort of thing, sure. and including our emotions, which we mm-hmm. might think about being particularly moved at the singing of a hymn or particularly moved, as you said, in a charismatic or Pentecostal service. Those things are all fine. But for me, sacrament talks about this overall way of being in and with God, hmm. it it pre- it um, it prevents us from Christianity being merely pietistic, merely inward. Whether that inwardness, as you said, is our quote brain or our heart or whatever you know, the seat yeah, of our affections, yeah, yeah. but that God is committed to the material world, so He's wholly hmm. other, but He's completely committed to us in these very ordinary ways, like you said, hmm. water. You know, being in the Jesus movement as a teenager, you know, that meant going to the beach and getting baptized. Like, isn't the beach for surfing, you know, or for (laughs) laying out in the sun? But who knew that actually oceans and rivers and lakes and even swimming pools are are modes of God's being with us. I mean, Mm -hmm. if you just think about that, it's amazing that it signals something about God always being simultaneously wholly other but simultaneously completely committed to his broken creation. Mm. So, you know, Paul says all of creation groans. So let's assume that includes um, the vines that grapes are grown on and the, and the stalks of wheat. Um, yeah. And it's assumed that, the, that lakes in the Pacific Ocean groans, yet God still uses those things to be present with us. So when I, mm. when I listed sacrament as a value... That's really what I had in mind. I didn't have in mind merely liturgy or merely the Eucharistic prayers, which maybe we can touch on later. But but the liturgy and the Eucharistic prayers and the Eucharistic actions and the Eucharistic materials are all signs to us, as we use the word assurance. They're a Mm -hmm. sign to us that God is, as we frequently say, always already present. And and the elements of sacrament, like you said, bread and wine and water, are just these very common daily re, daily reminders that He is in fact with us. Yes. So I see it Ben as like really orienting, mm-hmm. 
Mm. Like it, it's definitive of my life that God isn't somebody way far away. Like you said, I have to have a particularly profound thought or particularly um, profound emotion to touch him, mm-hmm. but no, he's with us in the, the basic elements of life. And so I see that as bringing hope, confidence, yes. peace, and yes. that word assurance. Yes. Yeah. It grounds us in confidence that mm-hmm. God really is with us in the, in the mundane, uh, the right. everyday, the, uh, the, the stuff of our bodies. And if we um, were to think specifically about the Eucharistic meal, of course, you know, when Jesus first inaugurated this, it was a Passover meal. And right. so it says something to us about God, first of all, that he's the deliverer. You know, Tom Wright is famous. Maybe others have said it, but I think I got it from Tom. That at the Eucharist, you know, all of the past comes to us, but mm-hmm. so does all of the eschatological future. And at all, mm-hmm. these are my words, not his. They all sort of, they, they like spark and explode on that Eucharistic table, you know? Yeah. And there's something happens there that reminds us of who God is. Mm-hmm. So in bread and wine, if you think of it in the past as Passover, we're reminded every week that our God is primarily a deliverer mm-hmm. and that we are being delivered and we will someday be in final consummation delivered. Yeah. And so again, just think of the hope that there is in that. The, yeah. you know, you can think of things like covenant, or, you know, the the first Christians often called this an agape meal or agape feast, meaning you know agape rooted in God's hesed, uh, His covenant, never ending love, even for His broken people. And yeah. yeah, so for me, that's a really orienting thought. Like, okay, yeah. that's what's real. And then, like you said, Ben, even when my thoughts are betraying me or I'm having a bad day emotionally, at least weekly, I'm invited to come back to what's real Yes. Um, in this sacrament. Yes. Yeah, I, I like that emphasis that we're, we're encountering reality in the sacrament, mm-hmm. right? That, that God comes to us in, in these tangible elements um, and that, you know, uh, I've heard it said, you know, God, God is the realest real that there is. <laughs> yeah. Know? God yeah. is the realest real. Yeah. Um, and, and so I that, think, that, and I think also to your point, I like yeah. your opening points, obviously, that <laughs> in, I think you would, uh, I mean, you tell me if I'm right or not, but <clears throat> I know I've experienced, and I'll bet you have, that often in that sacramental setting, that of worship sacrament, that mm-hmm. might find my mind being renewed. Yeah. And my affections, yes. my yes. affections being touched, my desires yes. being touched. And yes. so again, it's not like some cheesy mechanistic thing where I'm going to go to church and take communion and my brain and emotions will be fixed. I don't mean it that way. Yeah. I just mean to say, if I'm just being honest about 12 years now of practicing Eucharist weekly, yeah. that I found often my mind being renewed. Yes. And somehow in the liturgy or in the Eucharistic prayers yeah. or just the receiving of Eucharist or yes. in my case, having the great blessing of um, distributing Eucharist and just seeing what God does in people. So I think, again, it's not magical, but there's often a renewing of our mind and a resetting of our affections. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, I think I, I like that uh, emphasis where the, the, the sacraments here are not, they're not mere means to an end. Right. Where they're not, they're not just like, oh, here's a convenient way to kind of get your thoughts in order, or here's a helpful way to do this or that. But that we really are encountering reality, capital R, God himself, is coming to us in the sacrament. But that um, one of the byproducts, you could say, or the natural outworkings of that encounter is that our affections and our, and our minds, our minds are renewed, our affections are healed. 
and and we do become more and more like as whole humans yes. able to worship God in spirit and in truth, um, rather than and and that that then becomes this uh, I don't know fulcrum or this uh, anchor point right in the week yeah. where it's like no matter how crazy my mind and my affections have gotten this week, I I know I can come to church and receive the Eucharist. Yeah. Um, and we probably need to teach on these things uh, explicitly, you know, when appropriate. Yeah. Um, because, I, again, I don't think these things are automatic. But, no. again, like if you say to me, Todd, why sacrament is a value, I think because it gives shape and meaning to who we are. You know, when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, mm-hmm. we're literally being reminded that God is the God of the Exodus and the Passover, and we see that God most perfectly expressed in Jesus. Mm-hmm. And as we eat and drink of his body, we're literally embodying that story. We're receiving that story. So it makes meaning of our life. Mm-hmm. You know, I think all of us would confess to receiving some sort of nourishment in the sacrament in yeah. Eucharist. Well, yeah. how? I don't know. I'm not, uh, I, my metaphysics are not strong enough to, <laughs> or my psychological paradigms aren't strong enough. Yeah. But I could yeah. just say existentially, and what I've heard in thousands of testimonies, is that people somehow feel nourished in this, yes. th- this weekly receiving of the Eucharist. Now, we could yes. all point to people who take Eucharist every week who are really bad people, right? <laughs> Seriously, they steal, they cheat, they lie, right. they... Yeah have affairs, and they take Eucharist weekly. So we're sort of back to it's not magic. But if you're intentionally a disciple of Jesus and are trying to live into whatever it was, this is what I frequently think, Ben. And I actually, when I kneel to, in the year or so that I've not been a rector now, whenever (laughs) I kneel to receive Eucharist at our church before the pandemic, I would, or as I was walking up or kneeling, I would pray, "Uh, Father, whatever you intended, in this remembering, may I eat and drink it unto myself. Hmm. Now, I don't think you can go to Eucharist with that heart and be fundamentally a jerk. But there are a lot of people who just, yeah. they take Eucharist, just, it's sort of religious to them, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, not, it's not an aspect of their discipleship. Yes. But right. I think when Eucharist, the weekly practice of Eucharist, is, is to us a spiritual practice of disciples who are trying to take Jesus serious, then yeah, I think amazing things happen like yeah. like seriously amazing mystical yeah. you know almost miraculous things happen yeah. to human beings yeah. all right everyone uh, as you know the c4so cycle of prayer spotlight is this brief segment on the podcast where we highlight the specific ministry we're praying for uh, each week in our diocesan cycle of prayer and this week we are praying for Trinity Anglican Church in Atlanta, Georgia, led by the Reverend Chris McDaniel, who's also our diocesan canon for church development, which includes church uh, planting, church adoption, and leadership development. Uh, and he is here. He's joined us uh, to share briefly about what's going on right now at Trinity and how we can pray for them. Chris, welcome to the C4SO Cycle of Prayer Spotlight. It's great to be with you. Um, how about... Uh, we start with this. What's one thing that you're encouraged by right now uh, that's going on at uh, Trinity Anglican Church? Thanks for that. We were uh, early in the pandemic able to raise uh, roughly $600,000 to give away to meet hmm. COVID-related needs in and around our community and congregation. And 
that money was a shock to us. We actually were hoping to raise about 200,000 and the community just came together through really a shocking act of generosity. And that money, we've given almost all of it away, um, help meet needs within our church and also uh, support some nonprofits in and around our city. And just getting behind people who are doing great work has been a massive encouragement during a season of remarkable uncertainty. Wow. Well, that's a good problem to have. You raise too much money. This is true. This is true. <laughs> that's wonderful. Um, how about uh, the other side of that? What um, What's a challenge that you're facing right now that you want to share? Reopening. <laughs> Who's not facing that challenge? Yes, I mean, yes. right now we're beginning to do outdoor services. We're not sure okay. whether people are going to come, how it's going to go, but those start here really soon, actually. And we're not, yeah. we're not, we're not feeling totally clear about how the how things are going to unfold. So it's a challenge. Yes, indeed. Um, in light of all this, uh, how can we pray for you and for Trinity right now? I think just asking for God's wisdom and grace on this reopening process as we engage in outdoor worship. Uh, also, that the Lord would sustain our team. Uh, there's a lot going on for all of us in leadership and ministry, and we're just aware right now that we need the grace and power of the Holy Spirit more than ever before. Yes, indeed. Well, one nice thing about living in the South, I suppose, is that you can, as you head into the winter months, meet outdoors. Uh, we're, we're facing the exact opposite challenge where we've been meeting outdoors and that it's it's too cold. It's getting yeah, too cold. So. It's the opposite. We, we're yeah. just now to where we can go outside without baking in the sun. So <laughs> Yes, yes, indeed. All right. Well, Chris, thanks so much for joining us uh, for this brief segment on uh, the podcast. Uh, if you listeners would like to find out more about Trinity uh, or contribute to their work, Uh, check out the link in the show notes. Chris, we'll talk to you soon. So great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Peace. Bye-bye. That gets into the next part of the language that I want want to unpack a little bit with you. Um, You know, um, you're right, in the liturgy and the sacraments, the worshiping church is invited Beyond a mere spect, beyond being a mere spectator to God's glory, to becoming intimately involved. So mm-hmm. a lot of what you're talking about is that involvement. So this encounter right. isn't isn't just a wow, God is amazing. Look at him over there. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Um, but this, there's this intermingling. There's this. I mean, this is there's a reason it's called communion. Right. Um, and so there's this involvement in the mystery of the God who became flesh and dwelt among us. Um, that we're um, so there's there's an incarnational aspect to this. Um, mm-hmm. So that language of being involved here, it reminds me of what we talked about in the last episode. We talked about mission. Right. That we're like part of the, like mission is not something that we're accomplishing for God. It's something that we're involved in. We're participating right. in. So there's this intermingling. There's this involvement. Um, the church is involved in and participates in the mission of God. And we're using the same language here. The church is involved in, participates in the mystery of the incarnation through the sacraments. So right. I wonder if you have anything uh, to say about that, unpack that connection between mission and sacrament, because I don't think that's intuitive yeah. for a lot of us. I see it mostly narratively, hmm. meaning that, um, you know, the Passover said to Israel, you're God's freedom people. That, that's, a, I think, a direct quote from Tom Wright. You're God's freedom people. Um and that this freedom, you know, Paul says in Galatians, you know, don't use your freedom in self-indulgent ways, but use it to serve others. Um, 
So the so when I say being involved, I'm as when I say I picture it narratively, I picture okay, God is a God of deliverance. We see that as I said earlier, most acutely in Jesus. Jesus then says to us, "Come follow me," and you know, even as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. And whenever you eat of this, remember me, like remember my place in this story. Remember that I am like the icon, like I am humanity as God intended. Mm. I am Israel as God intended. I'm the church as God intended. And so whenever you eat this, um, remember me. And that's been where I see the pivot to mission. Uh, You might say it's rooted in incarnation Mm. because what we know of Jesus, we know of him, not because of speculation about Trinitarian theory, but he became a real person in real earth who did things and said things and embodied a certain way of living. Yes. And it's now the way that we know that. So you have the sentness of Jesus, his whole life and work and teaching, and then the cross, and then he sends us into the world. And so that's what I, mm. that's how I see um, that the sacrament reminds us every week of our involvement in that story. Yeah. Uh, you know, in first Corinthians 11, remember Paul says, Whenever you eat or drink this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So there's something in eating and drinking that is like this megaphone to the world Hmm. of God's delivered people, the the, uh, God's freedom people, as Wright puts it, are now sent into the world as agents of justice and peace. Hmm. Um, And and you know, and in Paul's language. Um, that that's a very embodied reality, right? Like poverty, racism, immigration, whatever. But Paul also sees it as dealing with principalities and powers. Like, what the heck? Mm-hmm. Like, what is that? Yeah. That God's freedom people are now meant to be agents of freedom in these very earthly ways, but that whenever we eat and drink, we're also proclaiming the end, at least yeah. the beginning of the end, even to principalities yeah. And powers. Yeah. Just in the act of eating and drinking, right? So there's this mm-hmm. embodied way that we're that that particip like going to church <laughs> right. is is this um is this embodied proclamation of the deepest reality that there is, which is which is intimately connected with mission, right? Because the mis- the mission is to proclaim this this gospel, right? You know, Jesus Christ crucified. Um so I'd love to dive a little bit further into that connection um, between mission and sacrament because it, it strikes me, and again, this is an overgeneralization uh, spoken for the sake of, um, I guess, just pointing out uh, two polar uh, two poles in which we can maybe exist in between. There's a tension here, mm-hmm. um, but I think there's some traditions that see uh, Eucharist and the sacrament and mission kind of associated in the way that if we just do the Eucharist right. If we say the right prayers, if we just right. if we just if we kind of like do the right thing here in the Eucharist, mission is going to happen automatically. Right, it will be a little bit like you said before, ma- magical maybe. Yeah, it's like it'll just automatically happen because we did the Eucharist right. Right, um, and then there's other traditions, and again, overgeneralization, but there's other traditions that have a propensity to to want to say that we want to throw in order to get to mission, we want to throw out the churchy stuff. Right. Right, yep. and so this maybe the predominant. I, I lived through that seeker. generation. Yeah, that's the me. Seeker gener- the seeker, <laughs> the seeker movement, right? It's like, oh, yeah. hey, hey, if we want to be on mission, if we, if we really want to get people to know Jesus, we got to get rid of all these crosses and all this weird language, and yeah. you know, the, the body and the blood and all this kind of crazy stuff. Um, but we're wanting to hold these things together. Obviously, right. those those I think are 
I don't know, bifurcations that aren't helpful and don't don't actually work. You know, I, I think that's I think that's been seen over over time. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how the Eucharist helps us discern and participate in God's mission in our everyday lives and and vice versa. And I don't, I don't know if you'd say it this way, um, but sometimes when I'm trying to be a little bit cheeky, I'll say um, we can't really have mission without the sacraments mm-hmm. and we can't really have the sacraments without mission. Yeah. Like you, you get one or the other or you, maybe you're participating in a, I don't know, uh, a bastardized, ver- a bastardized version of one or a truncated version of one, yeah. maybe. Um, so I don't know. How, how do you hold those things together? How does the Eucharist help us discern mission and vice versa? Yeah. Well, first of all, just keeping it real in terms of um, what m- many people have experienced in the last 15 or 20 years of what I like to call the the long tail of Robert Weber. And I mean that as a compliment. His mm. The work that Weber did and, you know, just evangelicals on the Canterbury Trail, all the stuff he did in worship has been enormously impactful for at least a generation. So one of the things, Ben, that I found I found interesting as a boomer, mm-hmm. you know, who sort of helped create cool church and cool church music and cool ways of doing church, you know, that sort of thing. And we were very serious about it. Um, so having lived through that and been a, a proponent and um, practicer of it, it's um, it's been interesting to me to watch younger generations um, deconstruct the quote the attractional church, and yet almost immediately get into the thinking you said mm-hmm. that if we just do liturgy right and <laughs> yeah. the table looks right yeah. and we say the prayers right that that alone will be attractional and it just it just doesn't it doesn't work and I don't think it was intended to work that way. Now, there is something about the public worship of the church that, of course, is unspeakably important, and it is somewhat attractional, you know, no matter what. But your point is well taken, that um, the way these things hang together, Mm -hmm. as I said, for me, well, I've talked about it narratively. Let me talk about it more personally. Um, Probably everybody listening would agree that in moments where you feel rich, you're most apt to be generous. In moments when you feel deprived, you would be most apt to be defensive about and guard what you have, and therefore not to be generous. Hmm. Well, if you think about what Eucharist is, just Thanksgiving. Hmm. So that weekly, I come to this table um, with great thanks for who Christ is and what he's done for me. That, I think, naturally leads to a generosity that people experience my nourishment in Christ is for their good because it just sort of naturally turns me outward. I feel so rich Mm. that I'm like a billionaire being asked for five bucks. Like, Mm. okay, fine. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, of course you can have five bucks. You know, that, that sort of thing. So I, I think there's something in it that enriches us in a way that we're given um, freedom to then be the people of God uh, in the Hmm. world. Hmm. So I don't remember if I've said it on the podcast or not, but I I would personally never, ever again want to go to a church that doesn't have weekly Eucharist. Now, I know there's even Anglicans and Episcopalians and others who don't do it every week. So I'm not making a negative comment on anybody who does morning prayer or anything like that. I just, for me, for me personally, Eucharist has become so much of what I'm being describing, what I'm describing here for me. Mm-hmm. that like Eucharist almost, I've never said this before. I've never had this thought before. And I, so don't hold me to this, but it almost feels <laughs> like Eucharist is almost like a hub and a wheel 
And mission flows out of that. Mm. And my discipleship both flows into it and out of it. My mm-hmm. relationship with others are somehow shaped by this practice of thanksgiving. You know, the practice of thanksgiving of, for others, like pretty much automatically rules out hate or vitriol or like if you're thankful yeah. for somebody, right. it, it pretty yeah. much rules out calling them a butthead or whatever. Right. So it feels like, I mean, yeah. that's probably not fair. I don't mean to be given a, I don't mean to be given a sacramental theology here. Right. I'm trying to say something more practical that it feels to me like most of the tentacles of my discipleship to Jesus flow out of or flow into in some interactive way with Eucharist. And that for me would yeah. include mission. It would include my sense of what I'm meant to be in the world. And so, you know, going back to that polarity you were talking about, I just think of the earliest disciples. You just think of like the book of Acts, you know, they were amazingly powerful while they were missionally powerful. Like we even need a better word for that. You know, like (laughs) they were something more than powerful yet practicing this weekly do this in yeah. remembrance of me. So they yeah. somehow pulled, they somehow held together what you're encouraging yeah. us, to, I think, rightly to hold together. Yeah. And it's almost like, I think when, when they're in the right relationship, um, they don't even need, need to be held together as if some, by some outside force, but that they, like you had said, like this hub and spoke, you know, maybe that's mm-hmm. a good mental you know, model for it, but, but they, they do uh, flow into and flow out of uh, each yeah. other. But mm-hmm. there is a sense in which um, mission and sacrament are, you know, what, what we're calling people into is what we ourselves are participating in. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's an integrity to the message to say, oh, this is, you know, this is the God I encounter every week in the meal. Mm-hmm. This is the God I encounter in the body of Christ. Um, and so it becomes, a nat- you know, all of us are natural evangelists for that which we are participating in and enjoying. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, I go to a new restaurant and, um, uh, you know, I become a evangelist i I become a missionary Mm -hmm. for the restaurant because i i've eaten the food and i've seen the wait staff and i maybe know some of them and i now it's easy for me to to talk with other people about that which is giving me life Mm -hmm. and so i i I see the i see those as integrally uh connected and really important so anyway i'm glad we could chat a little bit about that i think these values you know all five of them are this in, interconnected interlocked they're yeah. not like these buckets right that right. don't have anything to do with each other obviously yeah. um, but that they they're interconnected they interlock they give us different ways of uh, talking about this one reality that we're talking about which is you know life life in christ yeah um maybe uh one more question here to close um okay. and uh this is maybe a little off the cuff so putting you on the spot here all right um you know, we've, we've talked about, um, you know, one of the primary values of, of sacrament is that we're um, the embodiedness of God's withness with us. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a clumsy way of saying it, but like how God is with us through, you know, the sacrament, through uh, creation, through right. um, that which we can tangibly touch. Um, and, I, you know, my, my mind immediately went to this pandemic and the struggles. I mean, we're just, you know, even personally right now at our church, like as the weather cools off, we're... Like we've been meeting outdoors for worship and that's been, oh, it's been so nice. You know, even though we have to be socially distant, we're in proximity with each other and we can take communion together. But now we're facing this specter of what what if the positivity rate stays high enough that we don't feel like, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, what if we have to go back to Zoom and right. I feel just this dread and this weight oh, yeah. on everybody? Yeah. Um, I don't know if you have any words of wisdom or... Um, 
you know, for, for maybe clergy uh, who are struggling with this, like, man, this is like part of the reason we became sacramental Christians is, is because of this. Like you said, I don't want to go to a church that doesn't celebrate the Eucharist every week, but like, what, like, how can we stay in touch with this value? Um, even in the midst of a pandemic when we're having to be distant from each other and a lot of us are you know, recording sermons or re- recording worship services or live streaming and right. all these sort of disembodied ways of being the church that we're reluctantly sort of navigating. I don't know if you have any words of wisdom or yeah. comfort. <laughs> Help us, Todd. Well, Help first, us. my observation would be that <laughs> sociologically, I think we as a as a people, and this would be true not just for Americans, but all over the world, and in some cases, oh my gosh, if you read what's happening in the poor countries, it's even way worse than us. I read a terrible article about Venezuela this morning. That So much of the world is struggling way more than we are. But let's yeah. just think about this. Like, I'd like everybody to just sort of picture this and feel it, that like we're corporately as Americans extraordinarily exhausted. Like exhausted in ways that, you know, unless you like live through world wars or something, mm-hmm. most of us have never experienced the kind of exhaustion we have in every way. And now, as an exhausted person, it looks like we may be told, get up and run another marathon. Mm. That the next months are, you know, some people think will be worse than what we've gone through already. And that is just, it's, um, for most of us, it, yeah, it just puts us over the top. We just like, what? You got to be kidding. How to, like, how can this be? How can you, you know, yeah. So... So I think that's the overall psychology. Hmm. I think what I've learned in my life, and I was just listening this morning on uh, Pray As You Go, that was the passage from Luke, where it's one of those summary passages that you find throughout the Synoptic Gospels about how everybody came to Jesus, got healed. Mm -hmm. And I just was thinking about it like, wow, you know, and with my, you know, charismatic background, I've seen a lot of healings. I've seen a lot of amazing things happen, but obviously not everybody gets healed, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So I think, um, Ben, in these coming weeks and months, we have to walk and chew gum at the same time. So (laughs) A, I don't think we should give up um, on the thought that we're meant to be agents of healing in the middle of this. Um, but B, I think we have to have a more sort of Catholic, robust sense of suffering hmm. and lament. So it feels hmm. difficult. I know it feels counterintuitive, like, you know, getting into suffering and lament, you know, feels like it leads us down one road, um, thinking of ourselves as agents of healing, you know, one to another in our communities and then from our church communities out into the larger community, they feel like completely different roads to go down. And I would encourage people not to think of them as railroad tracks or two roads to go down. I'd rather us think of it this way. In one coherent life, there will be moments that have an accent on suffering and lament, and there will be moments in which I am actually an ambassador of the kingdom of God and an agent of healing. And in the next moment, I might be feeling lament again. Hmm. So I think we need a simultaneity here. I think we need a both and um, hmm. to get us through these next six months, to not live in denial yeah. of lament and suffering, but to not lose hope of being both receptors and um, yeah. 
um, givers of healing. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good word. I, I think theologically, uh, what comes to mind is, you know, we have that, that those, those two things that seem so different to us, you know, hope and healing and suffering and lament, like those two things are brought together on the cross for us, right? In Which Jesus, means they're that, brought together at the table, yeah. That's right. That's right so yeah. the, the, like bring it back to the sacrament, like there is yeah. this sense in which, yes, that like these things belong together. And I think, you know, the mistakes we make are in our efforts to stay hopeful, we, we refuse to lament. And yeah. then, you know, other times in our efforts to pay attention to the suffering of the world, we lose hope. Yeah, we lose track of um, you know the re the resurrection and and uh, and the hope of the world. So that's really good uh, advice. Really good uh, help for us. This episode is dropping the day before the election here in the states, um, and that you know that's an added you know to the pandemic. Obviously, an added uh, stressor in the lives of a lot of people. So um, I think we can end there. Thank on you, that, Ben. That Great word. to be with everybody as always. Yes, that was, that's a good word. Um, coming up. Folks uh, on the podcast, where this is the last uh, episode of our inaugural series, um, and coming up on the podcast uh, in a couple weeks, we've got um, a series on Advent that we're going to uh, interview several folks from our diocese, including some canon theologians and some practitioners, some rectors on the ground who are uh, looking to find hope in harsh times. I think is the name of that. Uh, podcast, and then um, next week, uh, hopefully, we don't ha we don't have it completely nailed down, but we're hoping to give you some post-election uh, thoughts uh, from Bishop Todd and some others in our diocese. So, um, hopefully, that uh, happens. If it doesn't, um, hopefully, you forget that I promised that it would. <laughs> and you right. practice forgiveness. Yeah, yeah, practice <laughs> forgiveness. Please, yeah. you know, I'm going through my first pandemic, so please forgive me. So, uh, anyway. Uh, friends, don't forget about the Diocesan Convention. Again, a link in the show notes. And please uh, share the podcast with your friends. Uh, subscribe and then rate and review us, especially in Apple Podcasts. It helps people get to know us as we're just getting off the ground. Uh, Bishop Todd, we'll see you next time. Thank you, Ben. Peace. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the C4SO Podcast. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. Email us your thoughts and suggestions at connect at c4so.org.